Proctor here with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Strange Loop is coming up. Strange Loop is a multidisciplinary conference that brings together the developers and thinkers building tomorrow's technologies in fields such as programming languages, databases, distributed systems, AI and machine learning, security, and the web. It will be held in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th through the 30th at the Peabody Opera House. There are still a few tickets available for Strange Loop, and Friday, September 8th is the last day for regular rate tickets. Visit thestrangeloop.com to keep updated and for more information. BWL Conf 2017 is the second full-day Papers We Love conference, co-located with the pre-conference events at Strange Loop in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th. Last year's event was a great success, with talks ranging from designing network systems to game engines. The conference intends to bring academia and industry within reach of one another, hoping to foster stronger collaboration and mutual appreciation across respective fields. Tickets are $40 with an optional donation and free if you're a student or a recipient of a Strange Loop Opportunity Grant. Keep an eye out for updates on pwlconf.org. ElmConf is returning to St. Louis on September 28, 2017 for a day of learning, speaking, and connecting with the Elm language community. ElmConf will once again be co-locating with Strange Loop, and the conference will run on Strange Loop's pre-conference day. For tickets and for more information, visit www.elm-conf.us. Open F Sharp will be taking place the 28th and 29th of September in San Francisco. Taking place in the heart of San Francisco, Open F Sharp features two days of F Sharp talks and workshops with world-class speakers and a unique opportunity to connect with the F Sharp community and some of its key contributors, all while learning about the latest developments in the F Sharp ecosystem. For more information and to register, visit openfsharp.org. RacketCon is October 7th and 8th at the University of Washington and includes one day of speakers and one day of collaborative hacking. Their keynote speakers are the CS professors Dan Friedman, co-author of the classic reference Essentials of Programming Languages, and Will Bird, inventor of Minicanron. Details and tickets are available through the webpage at con.racket-ling.org. Celebrate the 10th anniversary of the release of Closure, October 12th to the 14th at the Closure Conge in Baltimore, Maryland. The schedule and speakers have been announced and registration is open. For more information, visit 2017.closure-conj.org. Lambda World is back, taking place in Cadiz, Spain on October 26th and 27th. Early bird tickets are sold out, but student tickets and regular price tickets are still available. For more information, visit www.lambda.world. Code Mesh will be taking place the 8th and 9th of November. Keynote speakers David Turner and Margot Siltzer are already confirmed. Speakers have been announced and early bird ticket sales have started. For more details and to register, visit www.codemesh.io. MoonConf will be taking place in Phoenix, Arizona, November 9th through the 11th. MoonConf is a three-day conference for the functional program community to learn and celebrate together. There will be single-track talks on Thursday and Friday and an all-day open space on conference on Saturday. For more information, visit www.moonconf.org. Closure Sync is a new conference by the creator of PurelyFunctional.tv, Eric Normand. Set in New Orleans in February 15th and 16th of 2018, Closure Sync is all about the craft, business, and culture of closure. Go to ClosureSync.com, that's Closure, S-Y-N-C, dot com, to sign up. Lambda Days 2018 will be taking place February 2nd and 23rd in Krakow, Poland. 2018 Lambda Days Call for Papers is now open. Submit your proposal for a chance to join Jose Valim, Feline Hermins, Philip Wadler, 
Heather Miller, and others on their stage in February. The call for talks is open until October 30th, and a research track is available as well. The last very early bird tickets are on sale. Get them all you can. And if you don't manage to catch the very early bird tickets, don't worry. Early bird ticket sales start on October 1st and will last for a month. For more information, to submit your talk proposal, and to register, visit www.lambdadays.org. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Julie Moronuki. Julie, welcome back. Hi, it's nice to talk to you again. It's been a while. It has been a while, and wanted to get you back on to recap your Haskell book, some of those lessons learned, and kind of talk about the craziness that is being an author for a second time with your joy <laughs> of Haskell book. So I guess let's just start up with a brief recap of what we've done last time. You were early days of Haskell book. Yeah, that was really early days. Seemed to be getting good reception. So do you want to talk about how it's been? Yeah, I've been really been really exciting how great a reception I think that Haskell book has received. We really wrote it for people who were self-teaching. So people who weren't going to get Haskell in a university class or didn't have somebody to teach them, a mentor or something like that. So they were mostly self-teaching. And, you know, the reception from people who want to self-teach Haskell for Haskell book has been just tremendous. There are more of them out there than I think we ever thought <laughs> there, thought there would be. And we've gotten some really positive feedback and we just released an edited and fully indexed now sort of final digital version. And we're working on getting everything in place so that we can release a print version, hopefully soon, but it may still take a while because right now the Haskell book website isn't really fit for selling things through. And so it's just a static, a static site and we can't really sell things through it. So my co-author, Chris Allen, he's working on that right now, getting the site ready for that. But yeah, the reception has just been tremendous. It's been very exciting seeing so many people excited to learn Haskell. And the self-teaching seems to be a testament because that was one of the things last time we talked when you and Chris were on first in the early days of the book was you established that you did not come from a computer science background. You were essentially Chris's quote-unquote guinea pig to teach Haskell with your linguistic background. So I think that probably helped make it extra approachable when you were talking about when Chris tries to explain this to you, you're like, whoa, 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 what do you mean compiler? And right. then you go on and you're like, what do you mean this? Yeah. Yeah, we really had to, because this was my first time, you know, my first programming language. And there were a lot of things that just, you know, I've had logic classes in college and then the linguistics classes. And so there were a lot of things that sometimes it would be confusion because we use maybe a word a little bit different way in linguistics or something. So I just, I'm the kind of person who really wants to 
understand exactly what I'm doing. And so, you know, we just, well, what's the difference between, you know, say a function and a value and an expression then, right? These are words that we use in Haskell all the time. And what kind of distinction can we draw so that there's actually, I can feel confident that when I say value, I mean value and I know what I'm talking about. Of course, functions are also values, but they're sort of a special kind of value, right? They can be applied to an argument. So I really sort of drilled down deep into some things that I think Chris wasn't expecting me to. Things that a lot of people don't ask questions about because, you know, maybe they've been programming in some other language for a while. And so they just accept, you know, various definitions of what a function is, whereas I wanted it to really be precise. So, <laughs> And on my end, that seems to help set the stage because whether you're new, that's one thing in establishing these terms. But as someone who's been doing this professionally for a number of years, and then even then before that, as the stereotypical kid whose dad happened to also be in software, got early access, I've got a lot of preconceived notions about what certain terms mean. And when you're coming across and either having new vocabulary, like category theory inspired stuff, or just right. saying function, method, procedure, they're all the same. Well, no, right. they're not. Right. And having that reset of a baseline, I found was helpful as well, just to make sure you're being, as you said, precise. Right. Yeah. When we did the first version, I think we actually had a little thing in there saying, well, we're just going to use the word parameter and the word argument interchangeably. And we got this email <laughs> saying, no, 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 this is this is horrifying that you would use these interchangeably, you know. And I didn't know the difference really at the time. So I got this email and I responded with, you know, well, I'm not sure that I understand the difference. So how should we clarify this basically? And so I did a bunch of research on it, right? And it turns out, okay, there is a difference. Although people often use argument to mean both things, but parameter then is used more specifically. So then I went back and like changed a whole bunch of stuff in the relevant chapters of the book to like make sure that we're actually not creating some kind of confusion between what parameters and arguments are. <laughs> I didn't want that. So, But there were times that we made, I guess, some controversial decisions, and then we decided to stick with them. So terminology decisions. So I did fix the parameters and argument thing, but some things we decided to just go with because I, I thought they were better for various reasons. And I think that's one of the things that having your perspective as someone in that book who said, yes, I'm new and I'm learning this, I don't have preconceived baggage. It also helps reset someone with more experience who has preconceived baggage and just re-embrace that beginner's mindset that says, no, 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 I need to think of this as something new as well because Haskell yeah. is different. So let me go back and step in those shoes and realize I probably shouldn't take all my preconceived notions of how I might be doing something in Java or JavaScript or C Sharp or Ruby or whatever language. Right. And reapproach that with a beginner's mind instead of saying, oh, yeah, 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 I know that stuff. Yeah, we've even had some feedback from people who are like, oh, well, I don't know why I should bother with the Lambda Calculus chapter. You know, that's the first chapter of the book. And that, too, is sort of a preconceived notion about why you would want to learn the Lambda Calculus. If saying, oh, well, I'm going to study the Lambda Calculus and I'm going to get out pencil and paper and reduce all these expressions, right? It feels sort of academic. It feels like math homework from college or something, right? But that, too, is something that I wish people would just read the chapter and sort of let go of their preconceived notions about what it will be, because that's actually a chapter that my, he's now 12, my 12-year-old son, that was his favorite chapter so far in the book. <laughs> he really enjoyed the Lambda Calculus chapter, and he did all the exercises by himself. 
and got all of them right except for one. So I was very proud of him. <laughs> and I wanted to cover that a little bit because on your blog, you've talked about teaching your sons as homeschooling criteria out of the Haskell book, or at least other things around the Haskell book that you were learning as you were learning Haskell. You have also been involved with meetups. What are some of those lessons and takeaways that you found when you're teaching people, whether or not they're the 10 or 12-year-old kids that you have, or the 30, 40, 50, 60, whatever that age disparity is to the meetups? What are some of those things that you found kind of common as catches and maybe just advice for resetting as us and the software developer that says, look, when you start to think about it this way, here's some tips to actually help get you over that. I think I've heard it, the Haskell deflection shield that yeah. you might be hitting. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, teaching it to my son had a fairly different goal than I do teaching it to adults. Well, and even they have different goals in learning it too. But with my son, I was mostly trying to teach him math and sort of using Haskell as a way to teach him some math concepts. So that's how I started teaching him. Well, I told you he did the Lambda Calculus, but but he actually started learning Haskell before we had written that chapter. And so I was using Haskell to teach him about variables. So doing basically very simple algebra, right? He's progressed beyond that level of algebra a little bit now, but doing very simple algebra where, you know, baby's first expression with an X in it, right? <laughs> and so, but it was so convenient for that because there is no x equals x plus 1. We don't do assignment in Haskell, not really. So it was a very convenient way to teach him math and have him be able to feel like it's much cooler than doing it on paper, right? Because I'm getting instant feedback on my expressions from the REPL or whatever. And then we've started using Code World, which is a program that Chris Smith wrote that he uses. It is Haskell, or it's a subset of Haskell, really. But in this... I don't know what you'd call it exactly. It's not, because it's like a web thing, I think. So that the expressions that you type sort of evaluate right there on screen. So you can draw pictures with it and stuff like that. And he uses it to teach kids math. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the word for what that type of thing is. But he uses it in schools to teach kids math. And he has sort of developed this curriculum around it. And it's great for teaching kids math. And and it does use Haskell, uses, like I said, a, a limited subset of Haskell, and he's changed a few things so that I think Maine will have the type called program, which is a maybe a type alias or a new type wrapper around IO unit, so that he doesn't have to explain IO and, and <laughs> you know, just this is your program, right? That's what Maine is anyway, so why not call it that, right? But it's a great thing for teaching kids math using Haskell. So when I teach adults, though, you know, they have, they come with different motivations. Most of the people that I teach, like at meetups, have already been programmers. I mean, it's really rare to meet somebody who Haskell's their first language. So they've been programmers. Most often, it seems like they're coming from, they kind of went through the Java to Scala progression, and now they're maybe sort of getting into the FP end of Scala, and now they're just, okay, maybe I should just learn some Haskell. So most of them aren't going to do it in their day jobs. Most of them are still writing Java or Scala, sometimes JavaScript at their jobs, and sometimes, of course, you know, C Sharp and other things. So they have their own motivations for learning it. Some of them just think it's cool and want to do some hobby projects with it. Maybe eventually they'll get the dream Haskell job, right? But a lot of them, they're perfectly content writing Scala at their day job, and they just want to learn some more of the sort of functional concepts that then they can use in whatever language that they write. So they have a lot of different motivations for that. And I try to accommodate that 
try to teach the really cool things about Haskell and build some projects and whatever they do with it. I'm just happy that they're that they want to listen to me talk about type classes, you know. <laughs> So as a, just a tangent, because you mentioned baby's first math, I just had a picture of, I guess, after this joy of Haskell, you're going to have like a baby's first category theory book. I have wanted to write a kid's book for Haskell, like a kid's math book using Haskell. And so, you know, maybe that'll happen, but maybe two books. I might need a break after that. <laughs> I was just picturing more of the kid's hardcover storybook that's category right. theory and Introduce it like the poem-based, here is a monoid versus a monad versus a uh, monad plus and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I think you could do that with kids. I'm not saying it wouldn't be a challenge, but I think you could do that with kids because kids' minds are so flexible. Kids are actually better, I think, at abstract thinking than we think that they are. Certain types of abstract thinking. So I know when my kids were babies, I bought them. There were these books that were like visual proofs basically right so there was like it was baby's first pythagorean theorem and stuff like that and we had one about why pi is the way it is so it was this visual demonstration of circles and why we use pi to measure circles right and they really got it <laughs> and some of this stuff i had never been taught some of the stuff that in the pi book i had never learned when i was learning about pi in school and so it was just really cool for me too and i mean they really got it because I think if they have something, like with the visual proof, they can sort of get that, even though it's kind of abstract, right? Like my kids had never worked with variables when we read the Pythagorean theorem book, but they got it. Just like for every triangle, this is going to be, or for every triangle of a certain type, of course, right? This is going to be true. And they really got that. So I think, you know, category theory, I think, lends itself to some visual presentations. Maybe, maybe, do you want to write it with me? <laughs> I think that might be the book that I need to finally get over some of the hump of this. It's like, yeah, yeah, this is for the kids, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Joy of Haskell is going to have some category theory in it. So, well, it's actually going to have some set theory and some lattice theory in it as well. So we're going to be covering some of those abstract maths a bit in that book. And maybe that will be a, a good introduction for people. And that's where I was leading up to with some of these teaching your kids Haskell, teaching Haskell in the user groups, the reception of the book. It sounded like just from watching you and Chris and the Haskell book account and just anybody else that I might follow related to functional programming, either tweeting or retweeting things about like, oh, I enjoyed this. Would love to have this next theoretical evolution. I don't know if anybody's ever going to write it, but. Apparently you are. And what were some of those foundations, I guess, from the teaching that has led into knowing exactly what part and figuring out what parts Joy of Haskell should be targeted? Well, yeah, that's a tough question. So when we finished Haskell book, I was already thinking that I wanted to write, mostly I wanted to write a kind of long appendix, I guess, to Haskell book that would cover all the GHC extensions, because there are a lot of them. And the documentation for some of them is not fantastic. And it can be difficult to find examples of some of them. And they can be just very hard to discover. So it started with just the GHC extensions. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to write about the GHC extensions, then maybe I should also kind of do a condensed reference to Haskell, right? So something like, you know how O'Reilly does those pocket books? So I thought, well, maybe I'll do like a kind of Haskell pocket book and it'll have like one page for each of the extensions and it'll have like 
you know, a page for a bunch of the major type classes, right? This kind of condensed reference. So that was kind of what I wanted to write after Haskell Book. To me, that seemed like a very natural follow-up to Haskell Book. And I don't know, I met Chris Martin on Twitter, as one does, and started talking to him. And he's really, really good at coming up with, like, very short but very illustrative examples of things. So, like, on the Joy of Haskell homepage, there's this nice little example of the Lambda case extension. It's one of the GHC extensions that very few people seem to know about, but it's really nice. And he just came up with this really short, concise, but very clear example of what it does. And anyway, so he's good at that. So I thought, well, this would be a really nice thing. Like, I'm not great at that. That's not really my... I'm good at explaining things in words, but coming up with the very clear, short example in code, sometimes I'm not so great at. So I thought, well, he'd be a good person to talk to about being a co-author. And so I asked him and we've started working together and it's going great. But then the project just kind of kept growing and growing. It became sort of the mission of the Joy of Haskell became, okay, you've reached some level where you're kind of a competent Haskell programmer, right? You can write programs in Haskell that work, <laughs> that do what they're supposed to do, and you feel comfortable with sort of basic Haskell concepts. So Joy of Haskell is not going to explain any of those. It's kind of the next level. We think of it as sort of welcome to the larger Haskell culture and ecosystem, right? So we're covering all the GHC extensions still. There will be some reference material for important type classes, important libraries. And beyond that, though, if you've noticed, perhaps, in the Haskell community, on Twitter, on Reddit, in the Haskell IRC channel, there's there's a lot of discussion about that relies on knowledge of set theory and lattices and category theory and different kinds of logic, particularly, I suppose, particularly intuitionistic logic, although other kinds too. So people will talk about first order logic concepts that, you know, a lot of people, if they've been, even if they've been programmers for some time, don't necessarily have that background. And so it can feel very disorienting, I think, when you first think, okay, I know how to write some Haskell, and then you want to join those conversations, but there's a lot of terminology being thrown around that maybe you're not comfortable with yet. So we thought, okay, we'll just include some of that. <laughs> we'll include some kind of references to like, or definitions, I guess, to a lot of category theory terminology. So like, what are functors generally, right? We all know about the functor type class, or most people who've written any Haskell know about the functor type class. So that's great, but what are functors generally? Like when we talk about an applicative functor, why is that still a, a functor? Why are monads still a functor? What are profunctors, bifunctors, and all these other functors? There's functors everywhere. <laughs> so we thought, okay, well, we'll define some of these category theory terms, you know, and we'll talk about different kinds of morphisms and why they're relevant to you in Haskell. What are some of the things then that knowing about these enable you to do in Haskell, right? So like, I mean, the Lens Library is kind of one of the more famous cases of something that kind of came out of category theory, as far as I know. But there are also some really cool things, like the Opali Library. It's for doing SQL database stuff, but it uses arrows and profunctors in some really cool ways. So we can talk about what are profunctors, and then we can show you the way this library uses them and what it enables you to do. So that's sort of what Joy of Haskell has become. And I feel like it's a bit of an ambitious project, but I know, like, intuitionistic logic is relatively new for me, but 
I had a pretty good sense of the history of logic and like I was really comfortable with first order logic and the lambda calculus and set theory even because set theory is so closely related to like Boolean algebra and first order logic. So I started working on those parts and Chris has been, Chris Martin, he's my co-author for Joy of Haskell. So he's been working on the extensions in particular, although I think the last couple of days he's been working on writing some stuff about the lens library. So it's covering just a broad range of topics and we're hoping to keep each thing that we cover concise. So this is not going to be your complete introduction to category theory, but just enough that like stuff in Haskell that relies on category theory will start to make sense, we hope. The way you're describing it, it almost sounds like, and I've seen you reference the Haskell pyramid, and that's come up a lot in recent episodes where the stuff you need to do to get by is very low, but the stuff people talk about is very high. Yeah. But it sounds like people after the first Haskell book have enough that says, yeah, I've I've done the exercises. I feel like I get Haskell, but then it's by the time I write something and try and use these libraries, I also feel like I don't know anything. So this kind of sounds like this is that confidence boost almost of we're going to tell you this and kind of here's the things that, oh, you hear Clisley. Well, okay. So here's what Clisley is or applicative functors or pro functors, as you said, or is it co-monad or all the code stuff? You're like, okay, no. Yeah. And the Yoneda lemma and the co-Yoneda. <laughs> it's like, oh no. So, yeah. But I think that we're sort of taking it one thing at a time. If we think about the whole scope of the project, sometimes it feels maybe like we're a little overly ambitious. It feels pretty big. But you just take one thing at a time. So I've been writing a little bit of stuff about set theory and monoids lately. And so I just take it. And then I've been learning more about intuitionistic logic so that eventually I can write those parts. But yeah, just covering the GHC extensions has been a much bigger project than we thought it was going to be. There are many more of them than even we realized. So, And when you were first describing the GHC extensions, as you said, of another book, that reminded me of the Ruby Pickaxe book by Dave Thomas, where like almost the second half was just like, here's everything documented from the Ruby Standard Library or the old O'Reilly books of the Java in a nutshell or PHP in a nutshell or whatever they were back then when they were first doing it. We were like, this is every single thing that's in the library and a documentation about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we're aiming for. So it won't be, of course, you know, every Haskell library. We're being selective about what libraries we cover, but it's going to be, I think, pretty substantial so that if you've understood those libraries, then it's going to make you feel a lot more comfortable just working with any other library because you'll be more comfortable reading reading the types, which are sometimes your first line of documentation. <laughs> so... And that's what it sounded like as well. And that's where I was getting at the pro-functor, functor, applicative functor, all this kind of stuff is here's some more explanation. So when you see these types, calm down. Don't start stressing out and shutting down. But right. when you read these types, you can start to understand what the contracts are because these are just – and I hate to use this term. and I know I've used this term around you and Chris and kind of had to say uh, – not in the Java sense, but these are just interfaces. This is the API to this type. This is the contract that this thing adheres to. So when you're looking at it, this is the interface as a contract, not interface as a abstraction like you have in Java kind of thing. Right. So as you push down this joy, you've got a lot of topics for this. You've got, as you said, this sounds ambitious. Almost sounds like you're trying to rival the number of pages that (laughs) Knuth has written in his 
art of computer programming. Yes. <laughs> I've heard people want to have written a book, they don't want to write a book. So I guess what actually picking up and figuring out that you actually wanted to do this appendix to start with, and we covered how it evolved, but right. what made you decide to kind of be crazy enough that said, oh yeah, like I just got done with this. I think you've all said it's 1,800 pages? Well, I think the print version is going to be about 1,000. Okay. So the PDF, the screen PDF, I think is like 1,200 or something like that. It's, and then Chris Martin has made me promise that Joy of Haskell won't go over 600. So we'll see if <laughs> we'll see if we can stick to that. Um, but what made me want to... Well, it just seemed like that was kind of another gap in the Haskell sort of pedagogical world. And the Haskell documentation world, it just seemed like this was a gap that needed to be filled. Because my whole thing is, I'm not, I mean, I still often don't feel like a real programmer because I don't, I do write code. I mean, I do write programs. I've written programs that work. I've written programs that talk to databases and still work. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I do know some more about programming than I did when I started Haskell Book, but I still don't often feel like a real programmer, but I just love Haskell. And so I want people to enjoy it as much as I do. And a lot of my enjoyment of Haskell is very, I don't know, kind of theoretical. I appreciate the kind of elegance and the mathematical abstractions in Haskell. But realistically speaking, most people who are programmers and are learning Haskell, what they're going to enjoy in Haskell is what it lets them do, right? The programs that they can write in it. and so. Practically speaking, it just seemed like getting better documentation for like the extensions and some things like that was just a hole that really needed to be filled in the Haskell community. And since my mission is to get more people to just enjoy Haskell, to love it the way I do, then I thought, okay, I just need to do this thing. And then maybe I can go on and do something different. But yeah, it's the same with teaching the meetups. You know, I just, that's why I started learning how to write SQL queries because I had people in meetups who they want to know how to do that in Haskell. That's a very normal thing to want to do. I had never done that before, so I learned it so that I could do that in meetups with them. And because whatever they want to do, I want to help them do it in Haskell, right? <laughs> it's, it's my whole mission in life now, apparently. And you said you don't feel like a real programmer. I can let you know, after doing this professionally for 15 years, not including some internships and whatever I was doing throughout late elementary, early middle school, there are plenty of times I don't feel like a real programmer. I feel like a programmer. And that's part of what the OCaml Haskell type system attracts with me is that now I can actually feel like a real programmer because I can actually be sure that some of this stuff is doing what I think it should be doing right. as much of a pain <laughs> as it is sometimes. But it's like, oh, yeah, I am actually covering my base cases. I'm actually thinking about these things that I wouldn't necessarily think about. and there's that confidence and reassurement that, okay, now I can be a real programmer because I'm not just like hacking stuff through and like I'm putting some thought into it, but it's still in the end amazing that software works at all kind of thing. Yeah, sometimes that is amazing, you know. And I've just, yeah, Chris Martin and I have been talking about this a lot lately together. It's just, you know, we've built sort of layer upon layer of software now that we're all relying on and depending on in ways that we can't just start over from scratch. There are things that you're just not going to do without. You're going to accept them the way they are. I mean, you're going to patch bugs when you find them and stuff, but there are layers of it that 
are just going to be the way they are for the foreseeable future, and you just got to deal with it. I think I tweeted the other day about something like, it's not really learning a programming language that's hard about learning programming. It's all the other stuff, right? Even Haskell is not hard compared to just learning how to just all the other stuff, all the command line stuff and all the, if you're going to use a text editor like Emacs or Vim, or you're going to use IntelliJ and all the various things that can go right for you doing those things. Maybe you'll get really big productivity boost from doing one of those things. But there are also then that introduces like new layers of things that can also go wrong, <laughs> right? And sometimes like I've been really struggling lately to try to get better in the terminal reading the error messages. It takes a lot of experience to know which parts of the error messages you can just ignore. Because I know for me, that's a sign that you've become a real programmer is just like being able to skim through this error output. I'm not talking about GHC's error output. This isn't a Haskell thing. I'm talking about, you know, I use Linux. I have Ubuntu on some machines and Nix OS on some machines. And, and so knowing which parts of those you can just ignore because they're not the relevant parts, like that's when you're a real programmer. <laughs> but that takes a lot of experience. I don't know how you could teach stuff like that. That's just an experience thing. And on the plus side, you've at least learned you need to read the error messages. How many times did I waste just because I didn't actually go back and actually look at what the stack trace was telling me or right. what the error message was? And part of the reason I'm interested in Haskell and have appreciated the Haskell book and am looking forward to the joy of Haskell online is because there's so many things that are there. Part of this is there's a little bit of the language geek and how does every language take a different perspective on how they solve these problems and yeah. what are the fundamentals? But being able to see, it's like, okay, when you start hearing about Haskell and the purity and being forced into purity, it's like, okay, well, even if I'm not doing Haskell day to day, as you said, a lot of these people at the meetups, it's it reinforces the separate out the impure stuff from the pure stuff, even something that lets you mix those willy-nilly. Yes. And that seems to me like a good idea. I mean, it seems to me useful for a lot of reasons, you know. Testing, I guess, being the, one of the more sort of obvious utility aspects to that. But yeah, that is a big motivation, I think, just trying to... Because even people who, who are trying to write functional, you know, JavaScript or whatever, that's one of the things that they often, not always, but often sort of come around to thinking like I can, I can separate some of this stuff and keep some of it more pure. So yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I guess that's why so many people in the Haskell community seem to use Nix and Nix OS because of the, there's a relationship there. I guess Nix, the language isn't typed, but it is pure in some senses. And so I guess that's why there's such an affinity for it in the Haskell community. That's how it creeps up on you when you do Haskell because you know a lot of people who do it and you're having trouble, you know, installing some library or something and or installing some package and they'll say, well, I don't know how to help you if you're using Ubuntu, but if you're using Nix, if you're using the package manager, then I can tell you <laughs> how to do it, right? And it just sort of creeps up on you. And now I've got my main laptop now is Nix OS. So I guess that's why the connection with Haskell and, and Nix, right? This kind of separation and, and having things be. It sounds like it's the knowing exactly what you're going to get. Yes. You might not be getting what you want, but you're getting exactly what you told it. And at least yep. you're consistent in that factor. You're always going to get the same answer 
Even if that's not the answer you want, at least you're always getting the same answer. But you know what's great is that, well, I don't know if you've, if you've used it or know anything about it, but if you really mess up your NixOS configuration, it saves your old ones. Like they're still there. So you can just go back to the old configuration until you figure out what you did wrong. I tried it and I think it's the scenario that you get when you're trying to take some of the, like, probably the Haskell and mix it in with another language and make that amalgamation. You're like, well, I had the pure stuff and I also had the impure stuff. And both those together did not play well. So I was using Nix on a Mac with half the stuff was brew, half the stuff was Nix. And depending on what I set up, it's like, oh, no, no, these are not playing well. Yep, that can definitely happen. That's, yeah. I bought myself like a spare laptop and I thought, well, all right, I'll just try putting NixOS on it, right? <laughs> I already had the package manager on, I guess I have it on both of my Ubuntu machines. And I thought, well, I'll just try it. You know, what can it hurt to just put it on this spare laptop? And it, I don't know, it turns out it's kind of fun. So, <laughs> And then we kind of touched on it a while ago, but you've gotten into Haskell more. You've made more progress. But touching back on your history as linguistics. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can explain some category theory just at a high level, because I've heard category theory is the essentially the math of math, how math works, the abstraction of math across all math. That feels a lot like what I picture linguistics. And I think of things more in this Chomsky sense, where Chomsky was kind of the linguist, but he was also the programmer where you had Chomsky normal form and you're breaking down and saying, well, you've got these patterns. Have you looked back at how these two things relate now that you've gone forward? I mean, that had a lot to do with why I was so attracted to Haskell. When I first started learning Haskell, I was not really convinced I was going to like it. And then I heard the thing about type should make any illegal state unrepresentable. And it just clicked for me then. I thought, well, that's that's what we're trying to do with generative syntax, right? That's the kind of Chomsky and generative syntax program where you want to come up with the rules of grammar that could generate any legal sentence in a language, but make any illegal sentences in the language unrepresentable. And when I was in grad school, I was sort of working in a generative syntax kind of framework. And in fact, like as Chomsky has gotten older or progressed, I guess, I'm not sure what it is, the kind of syntax that he's doing and then you know he's such a huge figure in linguistics that he kind of drives a lot of the research programs you know for all linguists and so his syntax has gotten more and more abstract so that it is becoming sort of like category theory in the sense that we draw these trees they're sort of binary trees of sentences right and we want to come up with the rules that could generate the binary trees of that language right and We know that, you know, in each node, there should be words, and these words will have parts of speech, right? Or each leaf of the tree will have a word. And these words, of course, will be in different parts of the speech, right? There'll be verbs, and there'll be nouns, and adjectives, and so forth. But at some level, we want to try to find, well, some of us, there is a lot of disagreement about whether or not this is a good program to follow in the linguistics community. So some of us want to find a kind of universalization, like a very abstract pattern that could generate all the legal phrase structures of a language from these just very abstracted rules and where we're not really talking about parts of speech anymore. That would come sort of at a, at a next level. If you think of language as sort of quickly going through a compilation process in your brain, right? 
you start with this kind of like very abstract knowledge of how phrases get generated. So the basic tree patterns. And then you'd have words and those words take arguments, right? In language, we talk about verbs taking arguments because they have to have objects and subjects and those are the arguments of the verb. And so then, you know, at some point in this process, those come in and you fill in the blanks with words, right? And I'm not sure that this is how people actually speak. Certainly not how people think of language when they are speaking or trying to write. But I think that at a very deep and abstract level, it's very similar to to some of the same patterns and rules that we see in category theory and in logic and mathematics that the rules of category theory are fairly opaque if all you know is arithmetic, right? <laughs> they're not really relevant to you at that stage. But at some level, they're still there, right? If you abstract far enough away, you go deep enough, they're still there. And those patterns are still there. And, you know, we keep finding in the history of logic, people keep, you know, inventing new ways to do logic and then finding out that, oh, well, these are still equivalent to each other, right? In some sense. So intuitionistic logics, even. So I don't know. When you get that far away from the actual language that people speak, I don't know how relevant it is to the study of human language, but I think we are getting at something important about the way the human mind works. These kind of patterns that we have in our minds that drive a whole bunch of things, logic and mathematics and language. And those are probably fairly important to think about in terms of, you know, how we perceive and categorize the world. So Haskell kind of really spoke to me on that level. So like I said, my love of Haskell has little to do with, you know, performance optimizations or anything like that. It just, But its connections to logic and mathematics and to syntax, I just thought were too cool. So I hope that was all coherent. <laughs> yeah. And I remember you saying that that was what Chris teased you with, was getting you into Haskell. Like, oh, yeah, we kind of have some of that stuff. And I didn't know how much of that... Now that you've gone in and you started teaching Haskell and you're writing a second book and how much of that kind of says, I'm really seeing a lot of these connections now. I want to say the term from category theory is one of the morphisms. I don't know if it's a monomorphism or the dimorph or whichever morphism, but almost, I guess, if you're going to take English to German to Spanish to Japanese to Swahili back to English, those are all easily convertible back and forth to each other. I guess those are isomorphic to each other to some extent, and you can translate. And I didn't know how much of that from your linguistic perspective of building up a syntax tree, saying a paragraphs instead of sentences, instead of words, as you teased about in your last episode, and having types like that and thinking that, but just going higher and say, well, as you said, We've got this abstract concept of how we build things in our mind, but there's also an abstract concept for any other language, and those languages are pretty much representable back and forth and transformable to some extent. There may be missing words, but overall, yeah, the higher order linguistics, I guess, is that. And I didn't know how much of that you were like, oh, this is getting extra interesting now that I'm digging in further because I can see how this goes back to the linguistic side. That's a tough question. Yeah, I do still see it, but I have not been, I don't know, I've been so kind of getting really deep into certain kinds of mathematics right now that I think I've, I've forgotten about linguistics a little bit. <laughs> so maybe once I start getting into more category theory, I've read 
just a little bit of category theory. I kind of, well, I had never heard of category theory, to be quite honest, until I started learning Haskell. And then when I realized that there was a, a similarity, a relationship between we have some and product types and, oh, some and products are also monoids. And so then, you know, oh, sums and products and types are a monoidal category, right? So that was kind of my first, oh, wait, whoa, category theory might be really cool. <laughs> so I still don't know a whole lot about it. And I've been doing some reading and I hope to be able to explain some of this. But it does seem to me that there are a lot of similarities and I keep intending to write. And I've got this one Twitter follower who keeps reminding me about it. And, I've, and I keep putting it off. I keep intending to write... I had this thought, you know, kind of a shower thought, like, hmm, maybe instead of thinking of verbs as data types, maybe we need to think of verb. The concept is like more like a type class or maybe a couple of type classes. And so I keep meaning to write a kind of blog post about where that thought came from and why I think that way. So, yeah, I do keep sort of thinking about it, but it's been, I don't know, I think I'm a little, and in particular, I'm giving a talk in October at a Haskell exchange about monoids. And so right now my head is just monoids. It's all monoids. That's all that's going on in my head. <laughs> so yeah, I'm going to be talking about um, some Boolean algebra and some set theory and, and some of the monoid type classes. So monoid and alternative and monad plus. So, yeah. So and I don't know. There must be ways in which that's relevant to linguistics, but I haven't come up with something yet. So, And sometimes it's one of those it's just seeing the passion align ever so slightly without digging in, but like, oh yeah, I think I'm starting to see, I remember them talking about this stuff and this seems familiar now that I'm learning or scratching the surface of some of this category theory stuff, as you kind of had, you mentioned that shower thought of, well, what if verb is a type class? Right. It's those interesting things just to hear about. We're coming up on time. I want to make sure there's still a few things to talk about, but I want to make sure that in the course of this conversation, if there was anything that we need to elaborate on or that we haven't made mention to, we talked about your book. We talked about the origin of it. Yes. You mentioned Chris Martin as your co-author. Is there anything we just haven't covered that you at least want to bring up and make mention to or that we should touch on again before we start to wrap up the episode? I did start a repository on GitHub for writing sort of pedagogical code, and I'm hoping to do more with that coming up here soon. So my goal there is to write code and sort of lesson plans. So if anybody could get a Haskell meetup, or it doesn't even have to be Haskell, I have somebody asked me if they could adapt it to use for a Scala meetup. So that they're taking the idea and translating it into Scala and, and teaching it for a Scala meetup. So that if anybody did get a meetup going and they want some kind of lesson plans some programs that are already written that they could use to teach people that are written and also broken down right into parts so that you can teach them over the course of a meetup. I started a repository for that and I'm kind of excited about that. I don't know if it will be actually useful to anybody, but I like to think it will be. <laughs> so <laughs> that's been, um, I have a couple of other things that are going to go in there soon. And so that's, I guess, my sort of hobby side project right now. If the book wasn't enough of a hobby side project. <laughs> I know that feeling. Yeah, I think the beginnings of a roguelike are going to go in there pretty soon, which I'm pretty, I've been pretty excited about. I'm writing a roguelike right now where the dungeon is a tech conference and then your character is a, is the only woman at the tech conference. So yeah, so that's been kind of fun, you know. 
it's been kind of fun to think about. So that code will get in there hopefully pretty soon. And maybe some people, I'm hoping some people will use it to try to get meetups or hack nights or whatever. You know, maybe some people can learn some Haskell from it. Hoping. I guess in that case, trolls are trolls, right? No matter where they are. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, oh, I just thought it'd be fun. You know, you need to have, you don't need to, right? I mean, in some sense, roguelikes are all the same, right? (laughs) So you don't really need to have a different concept for them, but I just thought it would be fun. So, And then one of the other things you've mentioned recently on Twitter was... You cited another article saying, yeah, here's my problem with the Monad tutorials. Oh, yeah. If you're being bit and you're still trying to write these books and still touching some of this stuff, is there anything just as a summary for people who try and understand this to when they'd say, you know what, it's time for me to try and explain it. Do you have any advice for those of us who might be trying to do it and say, you know what, the best way to learn something is by trying and explaining it and to know when we may just abort those tutorials from someone who's written the Haskell book and is working on new books and just working on all this teaching of saying, do you have any advice on just saying, stop, before you publish this, you probably need to evaluate these things before you decide to publish this. And I know your intent as well, but it's not complete. Or here's the things you may be missing before you decide to just put this out in the world and have it out there. Right. So I think that one thing that I've read a lot of Monad tutorials, and I think that some of them are fine. Some of them are good, depending on the audience that's reading them. So part of the problem is that you don't really know when you put something on the internet who your audience is going to be, right? So you may think that you're writing something for people who already know how type classes work and what functors are, and so you're just only going to explain Monad. But then it shows up in a Google search by some person who's never seen any Haskell code before and they've just heard Haskellers talking about a monad or maybe Scala Scala people or whatever. They've heard somebody talking about a monad. So they just want this quick, easy answer to what a monad is. And if they don't know what functor is yet and they've never seen the way Haskell code looks, they're probably not going to get it from a blog tutorial. Maybe a series of blog tutorials that explains functors a bit and explains I think you can probably do it without really explaining type classes, explain what monads are anyway, without explaining type classes and still have it be reasonably understandable. But the reason, of course, monad is such a big deal in Haskell is because we have it as a type class. And so you can have then not just, you know, you've got the type class that your type can have an instance of, but you've also got, you can use that as a constraint then for other type classes and other type class instances and for functions. And so being able to have type class constraints is not a thing that is going to, or why we would want that in Haskell is not a thing that is necessarily going to make sense to somebody who's just reading a Monad tutorial. So I think that one thing I'd like to see people do with Monad tutorials is make it very clear the audience that they're trying to write for and really keep that in mind as they're writing the article. So the monad laws, a JavaScript developer, for example, who just wants to know what a monad is, they're not going to care about the monad laws, for example. So if that's your audience, that's not the best way to go about explaining it. Obviously, they're important to other people for other reasons, but it doesn't really answer the question of what a monad is. And so I think the thing that really made it click like in meetups, but we had already covered functor and we had already covered applicatives. 
but what it really made it click for my group in Meetup was we had a bunch of nested case expressions, and being able to tidy all those up with bind, it's like, oh, this is what Monad is, just an abstraction of these nested case expressions where we've got this kind of sequential order-dependent evaluation. We want this next function's input to depend on the output of that, the application of that function. And Monad is kind of an abstraction of that basic pattern. And so that kind of made it click for them. And I think that you could explain that much in a Monad tutorial, and maybe it would work for some people. I've thought of, I've started writing that Monad tutorial, and then I just keep thinking, ah, but I really want to, I really don't want them to only read this and then not understand these other things about it. And, and so it's very hard. They're very hard to write. They're very hard to write well. I have read a couple that I thought were pretty good. And if you want links to those, I can... I can send them along, but um, I try not to tell too many people in the Haskell community that I think maybe the best one I've ever read, the code is all in JavaScript. <laughs> it's not a Haskell post at all, but as an explanation of what monads are for, what monads are, it's great. Obviously, no type classes, but <laughs> but it's a good explanation of them. So, Well, and that sounds like useful advice as well, as you mentioned, of thinking your audience and probably just making that explicit in your blog post or article or whatever you're putting out there that says, look, this is for the top of the people at the Haskell pyramid. If you're not there, probably don't want to read this tutorial. If you're in Haskell, we deal with type classes. If you don't know type classes, maybe you should come back to this later versus this is the JavaScript. If you're doing JavaScript or Ruby, you just want to know what these things are talking about when you hear people say this term. Yes. Oh, and I do think that every Monad tutorial should say right at the top, you don't need to understand how monads work to do IO. <laughs> so, because I think a lot of people end up looking for a monad tutorial because someone has told them, oh, you have to understand monads to do IO in Haskell. And that's just not true. You can just do it. And you don't have to understand how all the machinery behind it is working. That can wait until you understand functors. <laughs> so... Yeah, I think all the Monad tutorials should make that clear. That should be a rule. That gets just back to, at the beginning of your thing, just alias program to IO, right? Yeah, yes. Yes. Just think of your main just has the type program, and that's that's all it is. You don't need to worry about that unit thing either, because I did a lot when I first started learning Haskell. I was like, what is this? So we've got an empty tuple. So it's nothing, but it's also something. <laughs> no, it's nothing. But it's also something because it has to be there. <laughs> yeah, so that was really hard for me when I first started. And I just should not have been worrying about it because it's just until you get a little further into Haskell, like what it is and why it's there just really are kind of a distraction. So that sounds good. And you mentioned in passing Haskell Exchange. Are there any other conferences, appearances you're going to be at? I know you're busy with a bunch of different stuff, but... Is there any other upcoming conferences or appearances or things on the radar, people to find you and meet you in person, maybe eventually track you down and get an autographed copy of the <laughs> printed Haskell book or at least sign their e-reader? That is, <laughs> right, that's the only one I know of. That's the only one I have planned right now. We, A group of friends have been talking about sort of starting our own conference so if that happens, that would be probably the next one that I'm speaking at. That's all I have on my radar right now. And that's Haskell Exchange, I think, is October 12th and 13th, 11th and 12th, somewhere in there. So 
be in London for that. I'm very excited. My first time in London, so. Yeah, that's the only thing I have coming up, I think. So, I don't know. I'm hoping to start a new meetup group or something soon. So we'll see what happens with that, because I guess I just don't actually have enough to keep me busy right now. <laughs> just writing a book. You had one meetup fall off your plate. You gotta, you gotta make up for it now. Yep, yep. So, well, there would be weeks writing the book where the meetup code was the only code I wrote all week, you know, and so it was nice to just have that and be like, oh, no, I have to teach meetup tomorrow, so I have to write this code. <laughs> I can't deal with the book right now. I have to, I have to do this, so, yeah. Plus, that sounds like it's a whole group of early alpha testers on some of the material, too. Yep, yep. So, where are the best places to find you? We mentioned the Joy of Haskell book. We'll get that included. We had your Argumentronic and your blog in the last, and I'll get those if nothing's changed since that time. Are there new places to find you? Haskell book, Joy of Haskell, Argumentronic on Twitter. What other places should we reference people to nowadays to find you? Yeah, I still don't really use IRC, and and also I don't use Stack Overflow. I read Stack Overflow as as all developers do, I believe. But I don't thought about answering questions there, but I just haven't quite worked up the nerve. And I don't really do Reddit either. So there's probably not a lot of other places. Um, I do have the GitHub repo I was talking about with the meetup code. So if anybody's interested in that, and there probably aren't a lot of other places to find me online right now. Yeah, that's probably it. And I'll get those all included in the show notes so people can go find that and come back to the episode and find out where to follow you online and keep updated as you get more news and announcements coming out. Cool. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Julie, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking to you again. It's been a while since we talked. I think yeah. it's been a couple of years since we talked in person and yes. a little bit while before that, but always nice to catch up with you. Yeah. It was great talking to you too. Looking forward to the new Haskell book. And once that starts going in pre-sale early access, definitely looking forward to finding a copy and tracking that down and starting to read that one as well. Cool. Thank you. Amongst many other books on my list, that one's yeah, going on there as well. So Yeah. <laughs> cool. Thank you. Yeah. It was really nice to talk to you. It's been it's been a while. Yeah. And let me know in the future if you want to come back again and share some more updates on the Joy of Haskell book or anything else that's got that yeah, you got going maybe, on. So feel maybe free I'll to have keep that kids category theory book next. So, <laughs> Well, again, I'll let you get on with your day and thanks again for talking to me. All righty. Take care. Thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.